I do a lot of classroom work, so okay. I'm one of these instructors that walks around and gestures and mm. so well, <laughs> I don't think that's going to work in this. Yeah, it, would, yeah. it, would, it would make it difficult. <laughs> <laughs> Um, students ask me questions, and I, I love to answer student questions. Mm. <laughs> okay. My name is Sharon Stewart, and uh, I also have a uh, male name. My male name is Tom Heitz, which is spelled H-E-I-T-Z. Uh, today I am Sharon Stewart, and I am a bi-gendered, transgender person. Uh, to be bi-gendered is to have a feminine presence and a male presence and put pretty much equal value and equal stress on both. So I'm comfortable as a man and I'm comfortable as Sharon. Um, I spend most of my time as Tom because I am male, biologically. Uh, I have had a feminine identity um, and a, tr a sense of myself as a, as a feminine person since I was very young. I'm an only child. Um, and of course, I was born in 1940. Uh, and I had no frame of reference for my feelings, really. And, so I grew up, it was a bit of a struggle growing up. But to be bi-gendered is very much like being bilingual. Uh, if my native language is uh, English and my native sex and gender is male, I, Tom is, is Tom. Uh, if I learn to speak French uh, as a second language, uh, and I, and I learned a second gender. It's, you never speak that second language quite as well as you speak the native language, but if you spend a lot of time in France, you can speak French pretty well. So um, that's, it, it's very equivalent really. I, to me, gender is a social, cultural language. And um, I have a long timeline as a transgender person. Um, in my, there's my early childhood and then teen years are one thing, but um, I joined uh, the first, the trans activist movement in 1967, so to speak, by joining a group in Los Angeles, California, which is one of the first groups of people, uh, men particularly, to uh, come out to the extent that they could gather in groups socially for an afternoon or an evening and discuss what they were doing and why and what the significance of it was. And um, that group was founded by Virginia Prince. It became known as Trias and it became one of the larger groups. I was in the U.S. Marine Corps at the time. Uh, I put my Marine Corps career in jeopardy by doing this, but uh, <clears throat> I was dealing with gender issues uh, uh, of my own, and this was a way to, to explore that. And I managed to spend eight, more than eight years in the Marines without getting busted. Um, 
I did not go to Vietnam. I'm a Vietnam era veteran, not a Vietnam veteran. I was a lawyer at that point and uh, doing a lot of work at Camp Pendleton. And I taught at Naval Justice School uh, for an additional three years, and then I was in the reserves after that. Uh, while I was in Naval Justice School uh, teaching in 1972, lesbian and gay people came out of the DSM, the Diagnostic Service Manual, and gender people went in. And as an instructor at Naval Justice School, I had to teach lawyers coming into the Navy and the Marines and uh, about the military regulations involving gays and lesbians. And uh, now they were going to have to be dealt with differently. They couldn't just be administratively discharged anymore because they were sick. And uh, the Marines, the military, used the DSM not as a diagnostic tool, but as a legal tool to penalize people for who they were. <clears throat> and now uh, they couldn't do that, so they had to find other ways. And eventually that led to don't ask, don't tell over a long period of time, and there was a lot of problems. But I became one of the experts in that area, even after I left the Marines uh, and Naval Justice School, people would consult me about it from time to time. And um, I began to, during this period, I, as the transgender movement emerged, I emerged with it as a transgender person. Um, in the early days of the transgender movement, uh, the street credibility rested with the transsexuals. And so if you went and got your sex changed, and they were all men at this point, becoming females, it largely meant you had to leave your family uh, to do that. And it was, uh, uh, there came a point where uh, I got fired uh, from a job in Canada because I was transgender. I was discovered and basically what they did was they didn't renew my contract. I went up there for five years to work as a landed immigrant. I had married in 1964 um, while I was in law school and um, my I, I didn't have any frame of reference for gender at that point and my wife, I didn't tell her until we were four or five years into the marriage and had a child. And uh, we eventually had three daughters. Um, and my struggle was I didn't want to leave my family. Uh, I didn't feel like I needed to punch my ticket by having my sex, my genitalia changed. I was different in that respect from some of my cohorts. And I, I don't disrespect them. They had their decisions to make. My wife didn't sign up for a transgender husband. She signed up for a guy. And uh, I, there came a time when I lost that job in Canada. I still had a consulting position. And I had to fit work for about six months to finish that job. And I was working on my own. And so I lived as a woman for six months. It was like a real, what they used to call a real life test to see if you could really do it. So I got to speaking French, so to speak. I got to speaking feminine pretty well. I could go around and pass. And, um, 
was I was doing pretty well with it, and uh, the Canadians at that point had decided to give everybody free sex change operations. They they have socialized medicine up there, and that was a new program, and they were recruiting people because they had to justify all this money the government had given them. So I signed up for an interview uh, at one point. I had friends who were doing this or considering it, and. Um, Consulting job finished. Uh, it came time to go back to the United States or stay in Canada. It meant losing my family if I stayed and changed. And I agonized over this decision for weeks. And um, when it came time to make that phone call, my wife and kids were back in St. Louis with her family. I agonized about that decision. I. I thought about it all day. I just couldn't think of anything else. And when I made that call, I don't think I knew at that point what my decision was. When I heard my wife's voice, Ginger's voice, and, and that baby, I had a new baby, it's just a few months old. I, I just, I couldn't do it. It just wasn't about me. I, it was about our family. So a couple of days later, I loaded the Volkswagen camper up and went back to St. Louis. And I've never been back to Canada since. Uh, I eventually got another job. Um, I was one of the founders of the Transgender Law Conference, a group of lawyers um, that gathered in the uh, 1980s first, and then in the 1990s, um, we produced a lot of legal uh, theory work. We did a lot of research. We had conferences in Houston, Texas mainly, um, about four or five of them. We gathered other lawyers and legal experts. Out of that grew law students, law professors, books. Uh, I worked on the International Bill of Gender Rights uh, the first human comprehensive human rights statement. There was another one that was a, a good statement, but but very partial in the in the legal sense at least. Um, that document had uh, a certain amount of impact in terms of establishing transgender people as humans, <laughs> and not something from another planet. Because uh, basically, what it did was it. Spoke, speaking in gender terminology, it basically went through the list of rights that everybody else has or would like to have and, and just said transgender people are, are, are in that realm too. <clears throat> and that encouraged there a number of entities. Uh, these declarations don't do anything. I mean, somebody has to adopt them to. And, and there were entities that did that. They looked at this document and said, yes, this is a good document. And there are a couple of municipalities. And oddly enough, it's been translated into several languages, maybe not oddly, but interestingly enough, in Europe there are other translations of it where it seems to have had more traction in Europe than it did in the United States. They put it before the United Nations, and of course everything goes to the United Nations, so I don't know where it stands there now. but. The, uh, that was probably my biggest 
effort there. I worked in the military law area too quite a bit in the council with people in the military about their problems and with people in prison. I was in charge of that part of it. Um, that group disbanded finally and we just went with the National Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender Bar Association. And we joined, uh, transgender people joined that group in about 1993, I believe. And I had the honor of introducing the resolution to include transgender people in that group. There had been some resistance too, but they took us in finally. My colleague and mentor is a lawyer named Phyllis Fry, who practices out of Houston, Texas, and is the, the real founding mother of the Transgender Law Conference. And I was one of the first, I was a founding director, and there were five of us uh, originally. The, uh, but that group was uh, very, very active. Some of the top uh, lawyers in the country that are now in the social justice movement for lesbians and gays came uh, out of that group in one way or the other. Shannon Minter, who argued some of the, of the big recent uh, Supreme Court cases, as uh, she's now, uh, I, I say she because I knew her when she was a girl, <laughs> way back when she was a Cornell uh, student. <laughs> uh, Shannon is a guy and uh, Shannon is one of the most brilliant lawyers in the country and has argued these cases in the U.S. Supreme Court. And uh, Shannon came to the, some of the law conferences uh, as a law student at Cornell. The uh, things have worked out pretty well for me. I've lost two jobs uh, to the fact that I'm transgender. <laughs> 